Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the prophets, and here Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John will be discussing the first bit of Daniel chapter 11. We are about to be winding down our video series on the Sermon on the Mount that's been going on over at YouTube, and we invite you to take a look at the link in the show notes to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow along with that series, as well as dive into some past series on how to read the Bible, a theology of the tabernacle, and the relationship between liturgy and work. We really hope that you enjoy this discussion, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Daniel chapter 11. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John and Alistair Roberts. Jeff Myers, who is usually with us, is occupied with a presbytery meeting today, so he will not be joining us. Uh, Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background making sure everything gets recorded and it's edited smoothly and is ready to go out to you. Uh, Thanks for listening. Uh, We're in the middle of a study of the books of the prophets. Uh, We started out a number of months ago with a general studies of prophecy. We looked through the book of Jonah and uh, for the last few months, we've been looking at the prophecy of Daniel and we're closing in on the end of Daniel uh, today. And in the next episode, we'll be talking about Daniel chapter 11 which is the penultimate chapter of the book. Uh, we'll have just one, one additional chapter to cover, and then we'll do a wrap-up uh, of the book of Daniel in, in coming weeks. Daniel 11 is uh, part of the large final section of Daniel that begins at the beginning of Daniel 10. We looked at that in the last couple of episodes. Uh, and uh, chapter 11 is just a, a continuation of that. In fact, the chapter break breaks into the middle of a, a speech by the uh, angel that uh, Daniel describes as the one with the human appearance who's speaking to Daniel. And he continues to speak past the chapter break of chapter 11. And the first few verses of chapter 11 are the conclusion of the speech that he began earlier. Uh, So this is part of a larger section. And uh, just to reorient us again to the book of Daniel, I've I've made this uh, point a number of times in our studies, but just to reiterate how the book of Daniel is put together. We have a, a series of narratives in the early part of Daniel most of them are in, uh, written in Aramaic rather than in Hebrew. And then beginning in chapter 7, we turn to a series of visions. Chapter 7 is a, a turning point, although it's written in, in Aramaic. So it's connected with the, the narratives of the early part of the book. Even though it's written in, in uh, Aramaic, it's a vision of Daniel, which connects it with the latter part of the book. Uh, and from chapter 7 through 12, we have a series of visions, four, four visions that Daniel himself sees. This is a shift from what we see earlier in the book where Daniel is interpreting the visions of other people, particularly kings. Nebuchadnezzar has several visions. And of course, Belshazzar has the writing on the wall that Daniel interprets. But beginning in chapter seven, Daniel himself is the visionary uh, and he gets interpretations from angelic figures who help him to understand what he's seeing. And we have a couple of visions that take place during the time of the Babylonian empire uh, in chapters seven and eight. Uh, and then a couple of um, a couple of visions that have to do with that are taking place within the Persian Empire in chapters uh, nine through twelve. Chapter nine is a separate vision, and then chapters ten through twelve is another vision. Uh, and chapters ten through twelve do fit together. There, I pointed out uh, a couple episodes ago that there's several framing devices. Uh, beginning of chapter ten matches chapter twelve, and as a kind of bookends frame around the around these chapters, you can refer back to the first episode uh, we did on chapter 10 for details of that. Uh, Chapter 11 is a a confusing, complex chapter. We're gonna devote a couple of episodes to it. Uh, Not sure how much we'll be able to eliminate it. I know that it's not very clear to me exactly what's going on, Uh, but I wanna give at least some parameters that are pretty, pretty well established or pretty commonly understood by commentators. We might, find that we uh, disagree with these or or have disagreements among ourselves. Um, But we start out chapter 11 with, as I said, a a little bit of the end of the speech of the angel. Uh, He's continuing to talk about his involvement with the Prince of Persia, and then the Prince of Persia being succeeded by the Empire of the Greeks. Uh, And then we have a mighty king that's described in verse 3, 
and we have a very brief description of the career of Alexander. Alexander has appeared already in the book of Daniel in chapter 8. And then most of chapter 11, though, is not devoted to Alexander's conquests and activities, but rather to his successors. And his successors, especially those successors who are nearest to Israel uh, and are contending with each other, with Israel in between. So we have a series of battles between uh, the king of the north and the king of the south. Uh, Verses 5 through 20 of chapter 11 detail those uh, back and forth uh, of the kings of the south rising for a time, and then the king of the north comes and and, uh, overcomes the king of the south. And both of these are kingdoms that are successor kingdoms to Alexander. There are a couple of the areas of Alexander's kingdom after the split up of his kingdom after his death. Uh, The king of the north is the Syrian, uh, the Hellenistic Syrian kingdom. The king of the south is the Hellenistic Egyptian kingdom. And then beginning in verse 21, we have the rise of a despicable person who has not received the honor of kingship. He seized kingship. And from uh, verse 21 to uh, about verse 35, we have the career of this particular figure. And again, we have battles between the north and the south going on. But here during this section, we have a focus down on the effect that this has on uh, Jews, and particularly this despicable figure who persecutes Jews and seduces some Jews over to his side. So there's this uh, split within uh, the people of Israel, some siding with this despicable person and some opposing him. And then in verse 36, there's a dispute about the last section of the chapter. Some read verses 36 to 45 as a continuation of the career of this despicable person. Others see verses 36 to 45 as a a more distant prophecy about some kind of antichrist figure. Uh, There is a a very minority view that suggests that verses 36 to 45 uh, are prophecies about uh, Herod the Great or the Herodian dynasty uh, that leads up to chapter 12, which introduces Michael the Great Prince uh, and the sufferings and tribulations of the time of Michael, which is sometimes taken as uh, a reference to the coming of Christ. So we have those basic sections, Alexander, the split up of his kingdom, battles between north and south, the despicable person, and then beginning in verse 36, we have this disputed final section uh, where there's dispute about what time period we're in and whether we're still talking about the same characters or not. Uh, one of the things that comes up in this, in this chapter, because of the detail of this chapter, this is predicting things that occurred during the intertestamental period. Um, uh, we've talked about that term before, the period after Alexander's conquests, uh, and there's a great deal of detail about the, the political situation and also the effect that this political situation has on Israel. Uh, and so many have seen this as not a prophecy of something that's in the distant future, but rather as uh, a much later uh, a much later document uh, that comes from the second century and is not prophecy at all, but rather a kind of symbolic telling of history, uh, the same history that's detailed in books of the Maccabees. So I guess we could we can start our discussion there with questions with the question about dating, and the uh, the source of this. Uh, I take this as a as a prophecy as an actual prophecy of a of the distant future, distant for Daniel, uh, rather than a document uh, that's written at the time of these events. Um, thoughts from James and Alistair about that. I mean, I agree with you entirely about the dating. Um, I think that people who do argue for a late date for Daniel, I think this chapter is actually where their strongest argument comes from. It does get tricky to see exactly how things pan out from verse 36 onwards. At the same time, I think we'll see when we get there that it's almost impossible that a prophet, a second century prophet, could actually think that what's predicted in verses 36 through to the end of the chapter would be fulfilled by Antiochus. Um, I was actually this morning speaking to a guy who does take a late date view of Daniel, and he he agrees with that as a sentiment. Um, By the time we get to verse 35, Antiochus is very much a spent force, and he has been cowed by the Romans and has got kind of nowhere to go. And the idea that he would then conquer um, Egypt and beyond and run rampant all over the ancient Near East is just unthinkable, you know. And so, um, while I uh, while I think there are difficulties um, 
whichever view you, you, you take of this um, of, of the final aspect of, of final stage of this prophecy, um, I don't think the late date solves it. Actually, I think you've got just as many difficulties that way. Yes, I very much agree with that. I think that um, also we've already had prophecies that point forward to this time earlier in the book of Daniel. So I think it's helpful to read those prophecies alongside each other, the prophecy of um, the 70 weeks of years, and then also of the the four beasts in chapter seven. And I think reading those alongside will reinforce our understanding of this chapter. Right. Peter, you said that it was a hard chapter to understand, which um, I, I agree with, and I think we'll probably demonstrate that in practice as, as we go through it. Um, at the same time, it's a lot less symbolic than what we've seen beforehand in the book of Daniel, which should, in theory, make some of its interpretation easier. So we no longer have beasts or great seas or, or statues. We have literal references to kings and cities and fortresses and siege works and so on. So a lot of that symbolism is now stripped back. And I think that's something that we can helpfully think about in terms of the big picture. There's a kind of progressive zooming in as we sort of work our way through Daniel's visions. I imagine it in terms of sort of starting from, you know, thousands of feet above the earth and just slowly zooming in. Like we get this four kingdom picture in chapters two and, and seven. And then in chapter eight, we start to get the specifics of each kingdom. So whereas in chapters two and seven, let's say the third kingdom is introduced as this uh, four-parted um, beast or, 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 you know, with four heads in, in or I think, or, uh, in, the, uh, in the seventh chapter, um, but here in chapter, well, sorry, not here. In chapter eight, we get a little more, little bit more detail to fill that out. It starts with Alexander and then splinters up into four, and then one horn of it becomes great. And um, here we're zooming in uh, even further, you know, and we're getting the inner politics of of that particular kingdom. And um, you know, I think in the knowledge of God, we could sort of almost drill down forever and we could have chapters 13 and 14 and, and and so forth. God could give us more and more detail. And I think that's an interesting to interesting thing to think about. There are some views, aren't there, today, that God is aware of the big picture. Um, I think this is a particular brand of open theism or something, but he doesn't dictate the details. Um, but I think what we see here is, is God... Uh, organizes the big picture precisely by dictating the details. It, it's the the whole thing that God has decreed, and and it's all just different views of the one plan. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point about the uh, uh, the shift in the in the uh, the kind of diction or the the, the genre almost of the of the uh, prophecy. It, the confusing part is not in trying to interpret difficult symbols. The confusion is trying to sort through who's doing what antecedents of pronouns, uh, you know, uh, who, who is the subject of the verb of this particular action? Which king is it talking about at which particular point? Uh, and so just on the, as, just as a textual matter, it's hard to sort out who's doing what. Um, and then also then you have the difficulty, of course, it, because it's, it is such a detailed description, trying to match that up with particular events in the in the history of Israel subsequent to, to Daniel. So I think it's a different kind of difficulty, but uh, you're right to point out the, 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 the change. The change actually happens between the first two of Daniel's visions and the last two, because chapter nine is also, it includes these numerical kinds of patterns, but it's a verbal vision rather than a symbolic vision using beasts to represent different powers. Seven and eight are both of that kind. And then chapter nine, and 10 through 12 are both verbal visions that are using human characters and describing things in some sense more literally than the previous visions did. Hmm. And much of the challenge here is the ping-ponging between the king of the north and the king of the south. And it's like reading a work of history that has all the names removed from it, the dates removed from it, and you just have the vague, vaguer outlines of 
the figures represented. And so we have these two figures representing, for instance, the six Syrian wars that take us from around 274 BC to 168 BC. And those periods of history are confusing enough as it is on the regular pages of history when they're represented in this more abstract form without the names and the dates, it becomes even more confusing. But it actually, if you look closely, can be related to specific events, specific persons. And when you look at it that way, it does make sense. It's not um, as strange as it might seem. The confusion is very much the confusion of a sort of abstract recording of the history, not of some um, very complicated symbology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one question I, I think we should try to address maybe here at the beginning. I like, James, your idea that this is telescoping down into detail. Um, why does it telescope down to the details here? Why didn't we get this kind of detail, detail prophecy of some other moment in, uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the history of Israel between Daniel and Christ? Or why, does it, why doesn't it zero down to something closer to the time of the Messiah, for example. What is it about this, this particular series of events, not just Antiochus, uh, we'll get to him uh, probably in the next episode in detail. Antiochus obviously is a big event, one of the big events of the period following, following uh, uh, Alexander and Daniel, uh, Daniel and Alexander. But with all the contest between the North and the South, why is that detailed in a way that, for example, Aleg- Alexander's conquests are not? Yeah, I, I don't have a clear answer to that. Um, but I wonder if part of it is that it's a, a fairly prototypical, um, if that's the right word, um, a, a, a typical situation for Israel to find herself in and probably for God's people to find herself in, insofar as she's kind of caught in the middle of this war between the, the two major powers, um, at least in that locale. And I guess Israel has often found herself in that position in the past, caught between, say, Egypt and um, Babylon or Assyria and other times in history and wondering whether to support one side or whether to flee to another side. And I guess politically, God's people have often found themselves in that sort of situation as well. And it does seem to have the whole chapter, that that um, sense of a slightly cyclic element to it kind of one wave comes down from the um north and and doesn't quite flood over but the next one will be bigger and the final one will sort of finally overflow all of israel into the south and i wonder if it's just got that um sense of of um trying to teach lessons about a, a, a very typical state of affairs and i think another thing that it's doing is it's joining some of the dots that we already have within the book So we have figures like the, um, I think we have prophecies that anticipate Antiochus. We also have prophecies of Alexander. And this really joins together a number of the dots, just with a very loose line sometimes. But we get a sense of how this all leads up to the events that are anticipated, particularly in chapter 12. And what we have previously are these specific peaks, as it were, on the horizon that are looked to as these prophetic anticipated events and characters. And within this chapter, I think we're having a bit more of a sense of the itinerary by which you will arrive at those places. Um, So it it takes us through the last of, in the very beginning, it takes us through the last of the Persian emperors. Then it takes us to Alexander the Great, the Syrian wars, down to the Maccabees, and then I think down to the Herods. And in that way, it actually follows the whole course of the history that will lead to the point. It's not just zooming into one point. It's taking us on the whole dusty path that will lead to the prophetically announced destination. Yeah, I think that's helpful. It also illustrates some of the, uh, in specific ways, some of the general means that we've seen earlier on in the book. So in terms of the collapse of the um, chapter two's Colossus, there is this weakness and there's an attempt to shore it up by means of intermarriage of some sort. And we can see that with the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, that there are these attempts to form alliances by intermarriages, which just 
don't work and, and end up sort of uh, collapsing and, and crumbling down. And, and so we're going to get a, a lot of that going on in here. Um, I also had a sort of general comment I, I wanted to make, and I'd be grateful to get your thoughts on it. Now, I mean, I'm conscious that this could sound like uh, an excuse for having a poor knowledge of Seleucid history, and um, uh, maybe it is, but um, but as I was thinking about this episode, I, I was thinking that I think we want to avoid getting into the mindset of thinking that our job as exegetes is basically to get a history book out and to line up chapter 11 with the different bits of history and then sort of job done, you know, because most of Daniel's readers, well, Daniel's original readers obviously wouldn't have been able to do that. Um, most believers through history probably won't have had the resources or, or the luxury to be able to do that kind of thing. And I feel, therefore, there must be a huge amount that we can get just from the general shape, uh, the, the tenor, the uh, knowledge of what God is doing and how he's refining people in all this. Um, I feel like there must be all sorts of general things we can learn from this, aside from its specific historical reference. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a very good point. Um, and I, I agree with you entirely that the, the point of interpreting this chapter is not to simply match up, which is part of the, part of the challenge that I think um, the chapter presents in some ways matching up, at least certain characters matching up is pretty straightforward. Um, there's almost, I don't, I don't know that there's any disagreement that Alexander is the mighty king that uh, opens the chapter or that Antiochus Epiphanes is the despicable person that appears toward the middle of the chapter. Um, making those, uh, making those uh, links, you know, the, and the, the Maccabean period is definitely part of that, uh, that uh, series of episodes in, uh, in that section of the chapter. That's, that's, uh, more straightforward. The thing that puzzles me is the kind of thing you're talking about, James, that with all the swirl of events that it's describing, it's difficult for me to isolate what exactly I'm supposed to take from it and how these, how these different events, I mean, North and South conflicts between North and South are common. We have a North and South that uh, characterizes the division of Israel through Israel's uh, monarchy. Uh, this is somehow a replication of that. Now, in the, in the period after the monarchy, we again have Israel caught between the north and the south. So th there's, some, there's some analogy with that previous period. Uh, there, there are, as you, as you pointed out already, James, there are analogies with other kinds of struggles between great powers in which Israel is a, is a, a toy for different great powers or a prize, for, a jewel for different great powers. But trying to relate all that, trying to relate this chapter to those early events and 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 those scriptural patterns, that's part of the challenge for me. The the, the historical identifications seem more straightforward. One of the things I find helpful when trying to interpret this is chapter twelve, verse four. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall shall increase. It seems to me that part of what's being said there is that. In contrast to the book of Revelation, for instance, where John is told not to seal up the book because the time is at hand. In Daniel's case, these are prophecies referring to some time in the longer distance, distant future. And as that time approaches, people meditating upon this, this prophecy will find that their knowledge increases. Things start to take shape as they look back and they see these things having been fulfilled. It will be a something that gives them a sense of security that God's purpose is in fact taking place, even in the constant to and fro of the um, Syrian wars, there will be a sense that those things, while important mile markers on the road towards the expected future, are not that expected future itself. There will be wars and rumours of wars, but the end is not yet. The end that they're awaiting is something different. And as they approach that end and they see all this running to and fro, they meditating upon the word that Daniel has delivered will find confidence and a sense of a, a steeled nerve in a time of uncertainty that they recognize they are not actually facing the final end. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I, I love the idea that in a sense, the, the prophecy is being unsealed as time continues because, uh, you know, uh, at some point, people are going to recognize that the mighty king uh, that is from Greece is Alexander. That's going to that's going to become evident, and then 
as the as the uh, the wars between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids unfold, that will become clear, and they'll be expecting this next character to be becoming. So it's uh, it's like the book the the sealed book is being opened gradually over the course of several centuries. Right. Yeah. I mean, something else can, that can help, I think, is just to keep in mind where this whole vision is going. And a lot of this expands on what Alistair has been saying. But as I see it, there are these, there are kind of three distinct movements, really, in the in the chapter. And each is an attempt, either by the North or, or, or the South, to pass into their opponent's realm and retain control of it and almost join up North and South under one head. But it never it never quite works, you know, but that I think is the direction of travel um, uh, in the chapter to unite North and South and um, everywhere in the chapter where it talks about the the two kingdoms and and their kings, we always get them qualified with these terms, you know, King of the South or or King of the North. Um, But in in verse 36, where the whole thing comes to a head, it, it drops those titles and we're just told about the king he's introduced as and he does seem to be the one who unites these two um realms and and who goes into egypt and and keeps control of it and at that point we are plunged into uh what's called in verse 40 the time of the end so that's where it's heading and it seems to me that at various points before then we're told that the vision kind of could theoretically have come to a premature end so like in verse 14 it talks about how daniel's own um, people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision um as if they're trying to do something that would usher in the end immediately um but they will fall you know it won't and then in verse 27 we're told plans are made um but to no avail for the end is not yet and again in verse 35 it still awaits the appointed time and it it feels to me that there is this um very clear direction of travel that each wave that crashes in either from the north or south is is getting further and further up and um uh and that god is holding the final end um until his appointed time yeah, do you think that that uh, that struggle to unite north and south is a um if you think about uh, think about it in, in terms of the uh, motivations of the different figures it's is is it a uh, an attempt to recover the glories of the uh, of the empire of Alexander. So Alexander had this uh, a vast and united empire that broke up. And is this an effort to kind of replicate that that moment of glory? Yeah, I wonder. I mean, in terms of um, the geography, at least, we've got an interesting situation. We've got Israel in the middle, um, you know, Shemites, and then we've got kind of Hamites. Um, in, in terms of Egypt and, and then um, Japhethites sort of coming down from the north. So it, it does feel that there's, there's this very, although it's local, it, there's a very global character to it. Right. So maybe even beyond saying that it's an effort to reunite the uh, Empire of Alexander, it's a, almost a Babel-like, uh, in that context, it's almost a Babel-like effort to unite humanity, these different sectors of humanity. And that yeah, was going to very much fit with the overarching themes of the book. Hmm. Right. Did either of you have any thoughts on how um, chapter 10 plays into this? I, I, I noted various similarities between Daniel's experience and the flow of events in um, chapter 11. But uh, did, like, were you aware of anything similar? or well, uh, Why don't you point to some specifics? Uh, well, uh, well, okay. I mean, yes. It's, I mean, see, see what you make of these. I mean, it seems to me that when Daniel is um, spoken to in chapter ten, there is it's a sort of four stage process, and three of them kind of don't quite succeed, and and the fourth one does. You know, so initially, in um, where are we? Chapter ten and verse five. Um, the big Daniel sees this great vision, and he, he falls to the floor. Um, and then in verse 10, he's re- revived by this touch um, by the angel and he's given some strength. But then in verse 15, after the angel has spoken, he ends up with his face um, to the ground. And then in verse 16, there's another touch um, by the angel, but he's still weak and it says no strength remains in him. In him. And then there's the final touch in um, 
verse 18, where he, he does stand and, and he's ready to um, rise on his feet and understand. And I mean, it feels to me that chapter 11 has that same kind of three big surges and then a fourth one, which succeeds, kind of tied together with some very specific verbal um, uh, verbal links between them. So, I mean, in verse five of chapter 11, we've got this big surge from the south into the north and an attempt to make an alliance. But just as Daniel is said to retain no strength, so in verse six of, of chapter 11, uh, this alliance, the, the um, daughter of the king, retains no strength. Um, it, it, it doesn't have a permanent um, effect. And then I guess there's the, the counter surge in verse nine onwards, where the north comes into the south. And um, that doesn't have a permanent effect either. And so at the end in uh, verse 19, which is, I guess, where we're going to finish um, this week, it says he, he turns his face back um, towards his own land. And that's identical to when Daniel is said to have his face towards the ground. Um, it's, it's sort of identical he, Hebrew there. And then um, the next big surge is Antiochus, you know, the fourth from verse 20 through to 35. Um and there, it's, again, it's said in verse 25, that he shall not stand, which, which is said of, of, of Daniel. And then it's the final king who succeeds um, in verse 36 onwards. So it feels to me that there are kind of three, um, in both cases, there are sort of three um, movements triggered by God that sort of don't have a lasting effect. And then a fourth one, which does. Yeah, very, that's very interesting. And you have a kind of a small hint of that right at the beginning of chapter 11, uh, where uh, this is the continuation of the angel's speech to Daniel. And he talks about the first year of Darius when he stood up and gave encouragement to Darius. But then he talks about the future of the Persian Empire. And he talks about three more kings in the Persian Empire. And then a fourth will arise with more riches and he becomes strong and he invades the whole. So you've got actually you've got kind of a three stage. Uh, three different uh, in, uh, three different uh, uses of that pattern. Uh, Daniel, as you're saying, goes through kind of a three plus one um, sequence. You have the three plus one briefly for the Persian Empire, and then the longer three plus one uh, sequence for the kings and, and the battles that are detailed in chapter 11. Right, which is a known scriptural pattern, isn't it? I mean, we could think of like Samson's story where he kind of plays with fire three times with Delilah and the same thing happens, but then the fourth time he's he's caught or or even in terms of like the exile, you know, there there is the um, Assyrian uh, push into Judah, which gets a long way, um, but in the end, Hezekiah kind of rebuffs it. Um, then there is Nebuchadnezzar's first invasion when he goes off with, um, uh, I can't remember who it is now, Yochanan, I think he goes off with um, the first time round or Jehovah also known as Jehoahaz he is, um, and then the first major exile, and then it's it's then there's sort of the second major exile when, I guess, all Jerusalem falls. So there are sort of three um, precursors, and then the big fall. We could also connect it with the final verse of the book, which says, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. And that theme of standing... Um, has been prominent throughout the, the vision. Yeah. Various kings stand and then fall, stand and then stumble. Well, maybe we could look at least some of the details in the early part of the chapter. We've, we've covered a lot of this in general. Uh, I mentioned verse two, which talks about the Persian, the Persian kings. There are, there are more than four Persian kings coming after Daniel's time, but uh, the, the ones that are of interest to this prophecy uh, there are just four of them, and then that rouses the opposition of Greece. And then the, from that time on, the prophecy is concerned with uh, Greek, the Greek kingdoms uh, that follow after Alexander. Alexander is the mighty king of verse 3. Uh, it's the same uh, vision that we saw in chapter 8 in an, in an animal allegory uh, where the uh, horn is broken, and, and then there are four uh, sections of the horn that are broken. Uh, and we again have that kingdom parceled out into four. And then we have a focus on the south, which is uh, the Ptolemaic kingdom that comes after Alexander. Uh, and uh, for about a century after Alexander, the, the Ptolemies coming from Egypt, they're a Hellenistic dynasty in Egypt. 
uh, that was set up at, by Alexander. They're, they're the ones that are dominant in, the, uh, in Palestine. And uh, you have struggles between the, the Ptolemaic dynasty in the south and the Seleucid dynasty that's based in Syria. That's what's being described in those verses. What do you make of the, the dis- description of um, verse 8? This is talking about the uh, king of the south who takes the gods, their metal images, their precious vessels of silver and gold into captivity into Egypt. And he and his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for years. Uh, uh, Jim Jordan suggests that that's, uh, the vessels are uh, referring to vessels as uh, the were vessels of the temple were referred to at the beginning of Daniel uh, in, in association with the people that are going into exile. This is a suggested kind of a reference to uh, another kind of Egyptian sojourn and the precious things that are taken down to Egypt are in fact Jews, not, not just plunder. Does that make sense to y'all? It makes sense to me that that's something Daniel would want to talk about. I don't know enough about the history to know if it sort of um, adds up in, in that sense. Yes, I'm unsure on that question. I mean, one of the things that that would do is put this whole sequence of events into, you put it, put it into a, the context of an Egyptian sojourn and an exodus so uh, the coming of the king of the north who defeats the king of the south uh, is put in a, a position of a kind of liberator, uh, almost a mosaic figure, who's going to release Israel from the domination of Egypt. Uh, and that uh, seems to be, in fact, what happens when uh, Antiochus III, uh, one, of the, one of the Seleucid kings, uh, finally does uh, defeat the, the Ptolemies and secures the the uh, secures Palestine for uh, this uh, under Seleucid control, uh, and that is seen at least by some Jews as a liberation from Egyptian control. So it's you're you're going through a kind of Egyptian slavery and Exodus sequence. Hmm. I mean, it, it certainly seems that a large community of Jews end up in Alexandria at some point in the third century BC, as far as I'm aware. So I guess I mean it would make sense if that had happened. Um, I wonder if I could just make a quick um, question about this sort of skip on from the fourth king. Sorry, this is rewinding a few verses, but um, Daniel goes straight from the fourth king of Persia um, through to the rise of um, Alexander, doesn't he? Which is interesting. And I, I was trying to think why. And it seems to me that Daniel wants to sketch like a history where he majors on the sort of the causal connections and which things have uh, impact later on in history. So, I mean, Persia arises and then it's the fourth king of the Persians who particularly stirs up the anger of um, the the Greek goat, you know, um, to use chapter eight's um, terminology. And obviously that conflict between Greece and Persia forms the backdrop of, of, all of this because the, the Greeks come in and, and take power. And then Alexander dies without an heir. Um, where is that? That's um, talking about not to his um, posterity in verse four. And that kind of leaves a state of confusion, which is the backdrop for this whole sort of broken nature of um, the Greek sub kingdoms and this failed alliance between the north and the south so it feels to me that Daniel is is picking out particular um, events because of how they define the whole fabric of history and he's wanting to um, paint this sort of this causal history of of what's going on. Yes there is quite a significant jump ahead after that fourth king which I presume is Xerxes and the second Persian war almost 150 years later until you get to Alexander And then there's a fairly consistent history from that point forward that takes you through the six six, um, Syrian wars. So we're all happy with positing um, big jumps and gaps in time in our interpretation of Daniel. Is is that a fair fair summary (laughs) of where we are? (laughs) We're not making it a general hermeneutical principle, James. (laughs) Rats. Uh, we'll want to. We might want to introduce a big jump later on in the chapter, though. So we'll, we're going to reserve that. We'll keep that in our back pockets, just in case we needed to get out of some some interpretive snags. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, there's a couple of couple of things that recur in this, uh, both in this section, 
uh, that uh, I think are curious. One is a huge amount of emphasis on fortresses and both in this section, the section about the despicable king, the despicable man who is uh, Antiochus, an emphasis on um, d defensive arrangements, d defensive military arrangements. And in fact, it goes on, uh, it says, uh, goes so far as to say that uh, Antiochus serves a god of fortresses. So there's, a, there's kind of a religious devotion to fortresses. Uh, I, that was curious, and I wondered if you had any thoughts about that. The other thing I found curious was that the fail, the failure of uh, marriage alliances on a couple in a couple of different cases. Um, we've already referred to this. I think James referred to it. Uh, verse six: There's an attempted alliance with the daughter of the king of the south comes to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. There's another attempted a marriage alliance later on in verse seventeen. He sets his face to come with power of the whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace. He will give him the daughter of women to ruin it, and so on. So there seems to be an alliance, uh, an attempted marital alliance is, of course, very common, both in the ancient world and up quite quite uh, common up into, uh, the, into the modern world. Um, but the, what's intriguing is that both of these fail. There's, there is not an alliance between the North and the South. Uh, historically, we know that this is, this becomes a, uh, a, a, a cause for yet another series of battles between the North and the South. So what, what, uh, what do you make of that, uh, that uh, motif of, uh, of failed marriage alliances, marriage as, a, as an inadequate attempt to bring peace? Well, it does seem that throughout the book of Daniel, we've had these attempts to bring people together in different forms, whether it's the attempt to form uh, one world empire that is formed of different sorts of metals and alloys and then admixtures, or whether it's the attempt to join together all of the people in the worship of the golden image. And here, this attempt to join nations together again fails. There's a, a sort of Babelic um, failure and as people are torn apart. In the first case, I presume we're thinking about the the end of the Second Syrian War in 248 and the failed marriage treaty. Um, and there are other situations where human beings try to form a false unity that gets broken down. I think Babel probably being the greatest example of this. And we see that throughout the book of Daniel very closely in the background. And I think these marriage, failed marriage treaties are an instance of that. The nations won't be glued together by any means other than the Lord's action. Yeah, and any thoughts on the on the for, the motif of fortresses and what what role that plays in the chapter? Not not specifically. I mean, obviously, a fortress is an idea of a stronghold, and and so it it seems to have the sense of permanence here. You know, so sometimes a king gets as far as the fortress and takes a well-fortified city, but but no further. And so I wonder if the, the mention of them is, is kind of just talking about the way in which each king is trying to get a, a, a foothold, a, a, a long-lasting foothold in his opponent's territory, but it just doesn't work. Things are too firmly entrenched um, until God decides that the, the time of the end has, has finally come uh, and this God of... Uh, the one whose god is, is fortresses um, uh, can succeed. Yeah, Should we I, see the fortresses in contradistinction to, or in juxt juxtaposed with the temple, um, maybe in somewhere like verse 31? Right. Yeah, and I, I, I realize that I have a, a way to answer my own question. The first time the fortress is used is in verse 1 of chapter 11, where... Uh, Gabriel or whoever the angel is is speaking. I rose to be an encouragement and a fortress for Darius. So the chapter begins with a reference to this angelic fortress connected with what you're saying, Alistair, is that the temple is a fortress. Yahweh himself is a fortress. Uh, but then we have uh, kings, uh, as, as James was saying, kings attempting to establish a foothold with a fortress, but the fortresses don't, uh, don't, uh, uh, don't protect them. They don't. They don't provide long-lasting safety. Uh, even the even the despicable person at the end of the chapter who worships a god of fortresses is uh, eventually falls. So the one fortress that does work is the fortress that's mentioned right at the beginning of the chapter, uh, and that's the fortress of 
God's hosts that surround his people. Uh, the latter part of the, the, uh, the section we've been looking at, I'm taking chapter verses 5 through 19 or 5 through 20 roughly as a section about a series of wars between uh, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And they uh, seem to culminate uh, with uh, Antiochus III, who is Antiochus the Great. Uh, he's the, he is the Seleucid who finally gains uh, Seleucid hegemony in the Holy Land. Uh, and um, the latter part of those verses from 14 to 19 or so uh, seem to be referring to his final defeat of the Ptolemies and his, uh, his uh, sec securing of that land. He's, it's leading up, of course, to the reign of his successor, uh, Antiochus IV, who is the infamous Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, is that is that who you're seeing here with the King of the North and in, in those latter verses? That, that's my yes. read. Of it. Yeah, I mean, my read of those verses would be um, the marriage alliance between not the more famous one, but Cleopatra and Ptolemy the Fifth, arranged by Antiochus the Third, and how that fails. I mean, that's an event recorded on the Rosetta Stone, um, and then. He's trying to subvert Ptolemy, Ptolemy, and yet she steers her husband towards alliance with Rome instead of Antiochus. And then he turns against the Ptolemaic and Greek cities and the coast, coastal areas. And then they appeal to Rome, who fight against Antiochus, and then he's defeated at Thermopylae and Magnesia. I think that's what's referred to in that part. Right. So verse 18, the commander that puts a stop to puts a stop to him is uh, that's the Romans coming to uh, uh, stop Antiochus the third in his progress. Yes. He's forced to accept humiliating terms and sent back from Europe. Yeah. And of course, uh, in spite of his successes, uh, he's stopped by the Romans, but then verse 19 immediately follows. Uh, he'll stumble and fall and be found no more. And he kind of uh, disappears from, uh, disappears from the story. Um, as, as all of these kings are doing, you have the, again, uh, Alistair mentioned the repeated use of the word stand. Uh, usually the word arise is, a, is some, uh, some form of the word stand. He's caused to stand. And you have a series of kings who stand, a series of kingdoms that stand, uh, but then they stumble and fall and then they disappear. Uh, and uh, that's one of the things that's uh, obviously been a recurring theme of Daniel as a whole is the Lord raises up and he, Lord, uh, puts down, the Lord is the one who establishes the times and parameters of the history of nations. And the same thing is happening here uh, with this more specific prophecy about uh, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Right. I mean, it's a fascinating picture of human history, isn't it? I mean, everyone is working according to their own motives. Obviously, God's sovereign purposes are, are behind it. But each person in a, in a human way is, is striving for, as you were saying, Peter, some sort of permanence with um, or place of refuge with the fortresses. People are striving for unity, um, and yet it all fails, you know. And and highlights the fact that the church should be that place, kind of God's vehicle of uniting different um, nationalities into some sort of permanent and lasting structure. And and that kind of is somewhere where the Christian faith should succeed, where all these predecessors have just been grasping in, in human means at these just ephemeral um, aims and so on. It's just politically incredibly insightful as a picture, I think. I think another thing that strikes me from reading this chapter is the pettiness of the great ambitions of human kings. Mm -hmm. um, when you actually zoom out to this degree, you begin to see that these great figures that bestride the, the board of the, the great world order are actually very small and their ambitions come crumbling down very quickly. Even someone as great as Alexander leaves very little behind him. He leaves these four opposing kingdoms and just a mess that continues for generations afterwards. And often we have this sense of the power of these empires. We think of someone like Nebuchadnezzar and just the greatness of Babylon, or we think about the Persians and their dominance of the world at this particular time of this prophecy. And it's very easy to forget just how small human empires are and how quickly they pass. 
Yeah, p- petty and also um, uh, repetitive and imitative. And um, you, you just have this back and forth and the ambitions are so similar. Uh, each has the ambition to conquer the other. And then when the other has a little bit more power, he has the ambition to conquer. And it's just this constant repetition. There's no, uh, there's no kind of creativity or uh, a movement forward, no maturation. It's just back and forth and back and forth. Right. And doesn't that just kind of highlight the folly of Israel's constant temptation to kind of try and pick the right side? And so when the Seleucids looked like they were on top, in general, Israel tried to side with them and show that they were on Antiochus's side and so forth. And in many ways, I mean, this is the temptation of the church today, isn't it, to kind of pick the political party, which is on top and try and hitch a ride with them. But I think this kind of big picture of history just shows the folly of, of that as a mindset. Also contrasts the, the fact there is nothing new under the sun in terms of these sorts of conflicts. But the Lord's kingdom, when it arrives, will be something radically new. It will represent a sort of breach in eras that leaves the past behind and starts a new age, which is something that none of these kings, for all of their greatness, could ever hope to accomplish. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.